Welcome to the next episode of P5 Protocols with Tom Seyfried, a cancer researcher at Boston College who is the world's leading researcher in, well, let's use the title of his book, Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. When you meet Tom, who is 70 and widely experienced, you immediately sense that he is a force of nature. Next week, I will be at a conference aptly named Tripping Over the Truth, which will have the world's leading experts in the research and development of metabolic treatment protocols for cancer, as well as Alzheimer's. Tom is one of the organizers and featured speakers, deservedly so. No one with metabolic therapies for cancer does a thing without speaking to Tom. I recorded this interview back on June 22nd of this year, but held it back a bit to coincide with his upcoming conference. As well, since Tom is a researcher and not a practitioner, he does not prescribe treatment protocols, but he does the research needed to create them. And with practitioners around the world, he has done just that, and to great effect. I love contrarian thinkers. As Mark Twain once said, whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. However, few do that, especially when their life's work is on the line. But Tom Seyfried did just that. For decades, Tom was a genetics researcher who kept looking to find answers and found that virtually all of his past work did not make sense. And he had the guts to turn his work in an entirely different direction, risking the pitfalls of heresy. When I see people like that, I'm in. I believe Tom is onto something. As some say, he thinks that going on a ketogenic diet will kill cancer. Though at times when he talks, it sounds that way. If pressed, he emphatically states that is not the case. His entire research is based on putting together protocols that include many different tools and even some current tools that have their place and time of use. As to the current genetics and immunotherapy approach, I hear of occasional miracles and in certain areas there have been and will be. But is it efficient? When will it work for the most? Statistics alone tell me that many millions will die before that approach figures it out, if ever. Remember that the war on cancer started during the Nixon administration. So I wonder, if in the 1960s, when the world's computing power was equivalent to roughly one iPhone, we were able to put a man on the moon and get a lost space capsule back to Earth, why, with hundreds of billions spent every year on genetic-related approaches, including immunotherapy, gene therapy, etc., are we not making any material progress? This should be done by now. Why are cures always around the corner? It makes no sense, and for those in need, why not try things now? Get any edge you can get. If you're in cancer therapy as a patient or provider, you have to at least listen to what Tom has to say. If you don't at least consider it, you are by definition not looking to get every edge you can get. And if your or a loved one's life is on the line, why not? And with that question, here's Tom Seafried. This is David Eigen at P5 Health, and I'm sitting here with Dr. Tom Seafried, who is a researcher in uh, metabolics and is, is the author of Cancer as a Metabolic Disease, which I have my own copy here with me today, uh, and is the leader um, or one of the leaders in looking at metabolic therapies as both adjunctive as well as replacement therapies for uh, various modern therapies. Um, 
And uh, Dr. Seyfried, thank you for being here with me today. Yeah, it's uh, a pleasure. Thank you. We, we've spent quite a bit of time talking, and I got to tour your lab and meet some of your uh, cohorts and students. Um, and uh, I, what I would love to do, as I've watched uh, a lot of the lectures you've given online and some of the interviews, um, and I'd, I'd love for you to talk briefly about what you're doing here. And then I'd love to go back into kind of your history and your evolution and how you got here. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, we, uh, right now, are, we focus on, on cancer metabolism, and we're also focusing on lipid storage diseases and epilepsy. We've done a lot of work in all these areas. But, of course, the cancer um, problem is our primary, one of, one of our primary uh, um, areas of research. And um, we, we've discovered over many years of research um, why or how we came to know that this is primarily a mitochondrial metabolic disease, um, despite the fact that we, myself included, uh, we were all um, uh, convinced originally that this was probably a genetic disease, mainly because you read so many papers about it, and mainly because when you teach it in the classrooms, all the textbooks uh, focus on, on oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes and the signaling pathways and all this. And, and as instructors in biology, um, if you're not working directly in the field, you pretty much use a textbook as a guide. So, but when you start working in the field, you realize that, you know, some of these things in the textbooks may not be correct, especially when, own, when your own research begins to challenge some of the fundamental issues that are in the textbooks. Because today, many of the students in medical school or, or in graduate school, they go by textbooks, they go by what's, what's written in the, in the literature, and they pretty much think, well, if it's in a textbook and it's got to be right, it's got to be the correct information. And then it became, started to become clear to us that there's a massive area of, of cancer metabolism that seriously questions the entire structure upon which the field is based. And that's not discussed. It's not mentioned. It's not even, um, even referred to in a, in a general sense. So, um, and we began to collect more and more data uh, showing that these tumor cells are uh, damaged energetically. They're mitochondria damaged. And that therefore the solutions to the problem become much more uh, effective and reasonable um, and not so mysterious as, as the current situation would have us uh, believe. And, um, you know, basically, in, in, in response to your question, you know, how did, how did I get to this place? <laughs> well, where, did, where did you start? So I started, well, I started in graduate school, and, and it was in genetics. I, I did my basic research in Neurosper genetics in, at Illinois State University. Uh, under Herman Brockman, who is a classical geneticist, in, in mutagenesis research. <clears throat> and at that time, we did mutagenesis research causing, you know, drugs that would make forward and reverse mutations in the bread mold and the Rospera. And we were using chemical carcinogens and certain, certain drugs that are used um, to treat cancer, but yet we were, we were interested in the, how these cancer drugs caused mutations in a neurospora system. So our focus was more or less on the mutations, not cancer. 
because we figured that if cancer is a, it was just, you know, it was a background. If, oh yeah, cancer's, you know, it's, it's got, cancer has a lot of mutations. So if you're in mutagenesis, it's linked to some way to cancer and all this stuff. But it wasn't like uh, clinical issues or anything. It was ba purely basic research. So then I went to uh, Illinois, the University of Illinois, to get my PhD with um, the late Bill Daniel. And I was interested in human genetics and I was interested in lysosomal storage diseases, um, which now represent Tay-Sachs disease and some of these lipid storage diseases. And I was interested in studying the lipids in the brains of mice. So we did a lot of work with gangliosides, which are a class of complex lipids that store in the brains of some children that have these lipid storage diseases. So we were doing heavy biochemistry into lipid metabolism and, and looking at certain mutations that affected the brain, the development of the brain. So this is very different than what I had done as a master's student. However, it was in the field of human genetics. So while I was at Illinois, I took uh, every kind of a genetics class that you could take. I took population genetics. I, I took human genetics. Uh, I, I took evolutionary genetics. Uh, on top of all of the genetics that I took at Illinois State University. And at the same time, I was studying lipid biochemistry. So it was basically genetics and biochemistry that I did at the University of Illinois. And my, my dissertation was on, on the role of gangliosides in brain development. And having left, then I left uh, Illinois and did postdoctoral work at Yale University following up on gangliosides with with Bob Yu, Robert Yu, who was a professor in, in uh, neurochemistry. So I got heavy into neurochemistry. And because uh, the department I was in at Yale was uh, in neurology, the department of neurology, and the main thrust was on epilepsy, um, uh, I, they said, if you want to stay around in the department, you better, you better modify your research to be involved with epilepsy. Sure, gangliosides are great, but the focus of the department is epilepsy. So I started to look at the genes that controlled epileptic seizures in mice and dovetailing that with the biochemistry of gangliosides. And we put everything kind of together. But at the same time, uh, my, my, my mentor, Bob Yu, had published an interesting paper on gangliosides in cancer cells. And um, there were some interesting uh, changes that were taking place in the gangliosides of tumor cells. So um, we said, well, you know, uh, what kind of gangliocide changes are in, are in brain cancer? Because it was a neurology and this kind of thing. And uh, it was just a branch of, of extending, uh, you know, one study to another. And it was also interesting at the same time um, with epilepsy, I wrote an internal grant to Yale University uh, to study ketogenic diets and epilepsy. And um, they turned it down and they said, no one's interested in ketogenic diets <laughs> because the drugs are doing such a great job. So what year was this? this was in the 1970s. Okay. Probably 78, 79, uh, somewhere in that area. And uh, I was doing ganglis. I came to Yale in 1976 and I was there for, um, uh, three years as a postdoc, and then I was appointed to the faculty as an assistant professor in neurology. Um, so, you know, I was I was pretty ambitious in the projects that I was choosing: epilepsy, gangliosides, and then certainly some brain cancer. And then um, uh, Dennis Spencer, 
who uh, was a the chief of neurology at uh, chief of neurosurgery at the time, knew that we were working on some brain um, interested in brain cancer and things like this. And uh, he said, why don't you come to the operating room with me and we'll, I'll show you how it's really done. So um, he gave me a, uh, this poor patient that he had with a glioblastoma. I was able to get some brain tissue. You can't do that anymore today. There's too many rules and regulations. So we started isolating gangliosides from the tissue of a human and comparing it to what the animal, the, the mouse had, the mice uh, cancer models. And it was interesting looking at the biochemistry of gangliosides in relationship to brain cancer. And then, of course, we were at the same time doing all this epilepsy research, um, trying to map genes that controlled epilepsy. So I had, I had several projects going simultaneously in the lab. But then I took the position at Boston College and extended all of these studies. And um, we continued uh, evaluating uh, lipid abnormalities in brain tumors as purely a, um, a basic research project. It really, there was really little... Uh, clinical relevance uh, to looking at gangliosides, at least from the perspective, can we, can we develop a therapy uh, to treat um, uh, cancer or, or, or brain tumors with our understanding of gangliosides? And of course, there was some loose connections, but there was nothing really solid. Um, but uh, it, it turned out that at the same time, uh, we were developing the best animal models, natural models of epilepsy. And one of my students... Um, uh, was invited to a, they invited me to a meeting at the, at university of Washington, Seattle on the ketogenic diet. And I said, hey, after my experience at Yale, I said, one of my students came to me, Mariana Tetrodova, and she said, Oh, this ketogenic diet is really exciting. Um, you, you know, can you, would you send me there? And I said, sure. Because I, I didn't know I, I had a bad, I, I had a disinterest from the Yale neurology department on uh, ketogenic diets, but my student was so excited so Jim Abrams, who started the Charlie Foundation, uh, was there, and he was gave an impassioned speech uh, about uh, ketogenic diets. His son Charlie uh, had experienced a horrific uh, series of treatments, um, drug toxic drugs, and all this. And then he went to Johns Hopkins and was able to get a ketogenic diet. And Jim was just impassioned by the the lack of information about this ketogenic diet, and it was Jim's. Uh, interest in this that kind of sprang the whole field forward. So um, I, uh, my student Mariana came back and she said, we're going to treat our EL mice with these uh, ketogenic diets. And I said, okay, great. So she did all this stuff and I was there and I said, oh, okay, let's, let's see what happens. And it turned out that the diets were working really well and stopping this uh, natural form of epilepsy in mice. And I said, this is really interesting. So I said, when I was at working, and we didn't know, but we, we started because we, we were doing some calorie restriction. At the same time, Perna Mukherjee joined my lab to look at anti-angiogenic therapies for cancer because we found that the um, a, a drug that we got to stop gangliocyte biosynthesis was also effective in stopping some of the slowing the growth of these tumors. So you have to realize this is a hodgepodge of different uh, areas kicking around with no real linkage uh, between any of the areas. We had epilepsy, gangliosides, cancer, and all this kind of stuff. But um, it became clear that the ketogenic diet was working uh, in a, in, in, by, by calorie restriction. So that was very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, anti, uh, uh, calorie restriction shuts down angiogenesis. Calorie restriction was changing some of the profiles of the gangliosides. So, hey, this is starting to become interesting. Um, 
And then we started treating the brain, the mice with brain tumors, uh, with ketogenic diets. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like, Oh, what's going on here? What, uh, what year was that? Oh, this was, uh, probably, uh, in the late, in the late eighties. Uh, no, yeah, no, uh, we started, it started, well, we started building natural brain tumor models, uh, in the, in the early nineties, um, just to study ganglucides and things like this. Uh, because I felt that I had made a lot of brain cancer models by using a chemical carcinogen. And um, on, on pathology, these guys, um, they look very, uh, very interesting like human tumors. But then I, I became very, very disillusioned uh, with the neuropathology field, the field of what we call neuropathology. Because I was making these tumors in the brains of mice using chemicals. And... Um, and we were getting beautiful slides. And I, I remember getting the, the first tumors into my lab, which started while I was at Yale and then transitioned over to BC, uh, from Harry Zimmerman. Now, Harry Zimmerman um, uh, was a physician at Montefiore Hospital in New York, but he started the first uh, department of neuropathology in the United States at Yale University back in the 1930s. So Harry was old. Now, Harry lived to be about 95. But uh, he made all these mouse brain tumors with 20-methylcholanthrene. And he told me, well, we have ependymoma, we have um, glio gliomas, and we have uh, th these different names of these different tumors. So um, I didn't think much about it. I knew nothing about neuropathology. I, these are all distinguished physicians and scientists. They're telling me what they call these tumors. So um, I got the slides from Zimmerman and uh, was making my own tumors. I went down into the neuropathology department at Yale and, and Professor Kim, who claimed to be the best neuropathologist in diagnosing tumors, looked at, this, at the, the slides that Harry Zimmerman uh, made and said, no, these are, none of these are uh, brain tumors. These are all muscle tumors. I said, muscle tumors? I said, what, by this, the, the Dr. Zimmerman, who started the first school of neuropathology, told me these were ependymomas and gliomas, brain tumors. So Kim said no. So I told, I called up Zimmerman, Dr. Zimmerman. I said, you know, our, our neuropathology, oh, well, he, hasn't, he doesn't know. Oh, well, I, um, I said, I, I can send you back the slides and you can look at them. And, and he said, yeah, no, no, these are gliomas. And he said, well, Kim says they're, they're, they're sarcomas, muscle tumor. Oh, no, no, they can't be a muscle tumor. So anyway, I sent the slides to my good, my friend, the late uh, Alan Yates from Ohio State. Alan was the chief pathologist there. And he said, no, these are not either of those. They're poor, poorly differentiated neuroectodermal tumors, completely different diagnosis than Kim or Zimmerman. And these are the same slides. I'm just passing the same slides around to different people. And then I, and then I knew Albie Messing from University of Wisconsin, who, who won all the contests for being accurately diagnosing tumors. So I sent Albie the slides. And he called them something totally different, um, another kind of a, a tumor that was different than what all the others had said. And I said, are you sure about this? And he says, I'm dead sure about this. I said, Alan, are you sure about this? I'm dead sure. And, and everybody was dead sure, and they all had completely different explanations for the same kind of tumor. And all from the same slides. It wasn't like they were. Then I have chapter three of my book uh, discusses this in great detail, recorded exactly. So then um, um, a kind of tumor that exists that uh, is an oligodendroglioma, um, which is a tumor made from oligodendrocytes in the brain. And um, 
a common kind of brain tumor, oligodendric. A lot of people who have brain tumors have oligodendrogliomas. And um, I'm in the neurochemistry. Of course, my field is neurochemistry. And I go and I listen to some of these people talking about the origin of oligodendrocytes. These are small glial cells that make myelin for the brain. And the controversy that exists on determining whether and where these oligodendroglial cells, or oligodendro, normal oligodendroglia come from. And I said, man, this is, a real, this is a real difficult field. Yet when you get a brain tumor, these neuropathologists can look at the slide and in two seconds they say, oh, this is an oligodendroglioma. And I said, huh? So Sandy Palais, a member of the National Academy of Sciences and considered the greatest neuropathologist that lived other than Ramoni Cajal, who was the, the great one from Spain. So Sandy did a beautiful book on, 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 on origin of cells in the, in the nervous system and characterizing. So I said to Sandy, I said, you know, how do these neuropathologists make a split decision in a period of less than five minutes to call a, a tumor and, and be so certain that they were accurate? He says, I have no idea. He says, you can't make statements like that if you really know the problem. And I said, oh, my God. So this whole field of neuropathology is like based on a, on a bedrock of sand, and uh, which is devastating to a field. You know, if I said that to neuropathologists, they'd probably be quite upset. But what, what my experience clearly indicates that you can get totally different explanations. So I brought that up to my close and good friend, Alan Yates. And he says, yeah, well, it's kind of a secret in the field. We don't really like to talk about it. Says, well, you make decisions on how you're going to treat people based on the pathology, and that pathology could be almost everything and anything. <laughs> so, so, what, so what year was that? that oh, was... This was back in uh, when I was passing. That was back in the 90s, I guess. I was passing the slides around. Um, it took over a couple of years. It didn't happen all at the same time. I was just passing these slides around. You know, one thing leads to another, and you start to question you start to question the very foundations upon which a field is built. And, you know, I'm not a neuropathologist. It'd be one thing if I were a neuropathologist, but I had very close friends that were neuropathologists, and they were all giving me different explanations. And then I talked to the leader of, 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 of neuroanatomy, who, who knows the field, and he says, I have no idea what, how these guys make these decisions because it's not based on, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the anatomy of the brain. And the cellular anatomy of the brain. So I'm getting different explanations from different people around the same kind of subject. So you just say, you know, you're, you know well, that's kind of interesting that you guys would say all this kind of stuff. So, um, you know, as we began to treat tumors with calorie restriction and ketogenic diets, um, it, it became clear that the ketogenic diet was having a major effect on the growth of the tumor, as long as the diet was calorie restricted. So then we were saying, you know, what is it doing? So Perna Mukherjee and I showed that calorie restriction was powerfully anti-angiogenic. It was, um, which the whole a large part of the pharmaceutical industry was building all these uh, anti-angiogenic drugs like Bevacizumid, which is a Vastin and a variety of other drugs that were targeting blood vessels. And I said, wow, you can target blood vessels by cutting calories. You don't need this drug. Why are you going to spend all this money on a drug when when you can get the the results from cal? Well, nobody wants calorie restriction. It's easy to take the drug. Well, also, I think you know, once someone started down, like in Avastin, was that the only treatment, or is that usually an adjunctive therapy? Yeah, that Avastin was at least for brain cancer, and in fact, Avastin was used uh, for other cancers. It, it was uh, pulled off for breast cancer because it was causing more harm than good, but it still remains as a, as a, as a procedure for brain cancer. But, but I, 
I guess my point is when, when you start with certain drugs, then the fear is cachexia. The fear is that the patients get weak. So if yeah. you go, so if you don't start with, so where in the process, calorie restriction really works at the beginning. Yeah. Well, better. that's a, that's another part of, of, of what we began, began to recognize. There's weight loss, cal they have fear calorie restriction in cancer because the patients are losing weight. So you say, well, how you can, you can't treat a patient uh, who's losing weight with a therapy that makes you lose weight. So this was the conundrum. And, and the problem of course, is that calorie restriction is, is therapeutic weight loss. You get healthy when you do calorie restriction. If you have tumor cachexia or you're being um, treated with very toxic drugs, you lost, you get, you're getting poisoned and you're losing weight because you're sick as a, you're sick as a dog. So you lose weight. That's called pathological weight loss and weight loss in cachexia. Uh, insulin is elevated. L L insulin and, and glucose become elevated during cachexia, whereas in calorie restriction, insulin and glucose are very low. And that's putting the pressure, killing the tumor cells. So this whole idea about weight loss, where does weight loss come from? Uh, cachexic weight loss, the tumor cell is dissolving the muscles, using the energy from the muscles to feed the tumor, and you lose weight. And you also have weight loss from the sickness induced by radiation and toxic chemicals. So you put cachexia, toxic chemicals, the patient's going to lose weight. All of these are pathological forms of weight loss. Very different than the healthy uh, benefits of calorie restriction. But if you say, oh, I, um, yeah, well, I'm going to use standards of care that are going to make the patient very sick. And, and now you're going to put calorie restriction on top of that makes no sense. Although the work from Longo's group in California showed that if you do calorie restriction, you can seem to tolerate chemo, toxic chemo better. So that's another uh, kind of a branch from this whole thing. But, but getting back to um, the revelation of what we made in looking at anti-angiogenic therapies and these seeing what, how many different, um, um, how many different uh, targets calorie restriction has. Perna showed that uh, calorie restriction kills tumor cells by an apoptotic mechanism, um, programmed cell death and this kind of thing. And uh, a lot of cancer drugs are, are, are wishing they could, or hoping that they could kill tumor cells the same way. Um, they're making anti-cancer drugs to stop blood vessels, which calorie restriction will do more effectively than any, than any anti-angiogenic therapy. And also, inflammation is known to drive tumors, and calorie restriction is a powerful anti-inflammatory therapy. So calorie restriction is actually doing what a whole different range of drugs would do. But the problem is calorie restriction is calorie restriction. People don't like to do that. So that's when we said, when I said, when I said that, hey, let's try these ketogenic diets, maybe because the, the kids with epilepsy use ketogenic diets, and they seem to be able to tolerate this quite well, and it's powerful uh, a mediator of seizures. And at the same time, I started to run, uh, there was a small group of, of physicians at the American Epilepsy Society meetings interested in, in, in ketogenic diets and calorie restriction for epilepsy management. So I started the, or, uh, started to lead the, the discussion groups at the American Epilepsy Society. Uh, and it was a small group at first. And then Jim Abrams got involved and um, told I uh, had uh, Beth Zupek Kenya. I introduced her at the meeting. We used to we used to do this ketogenic diet in a small room, maybe ten or fifteen scientists and physicians. And then when I when I turned over the chore to um, uh, to Adam Hartman and Eric Kosoff at Johns Hopkins, I mean we had um, over a hundred, more than a hundred people now interested in ketogenic diets and epilepsy. And then it branched into cancer when we started. Uh, treating the cancer with ketogenic diets. And the question is, how is it working? What's, but the bottom line is, what are we, uh, 
So it turns out that um, we lower blood sugar and we elevate ketones. And uh, Otto Warburg, back in the 1920s uh, and 30s, was showing that cancer cells are powerfully dependent on glucose um, and they don't have an effective respira respiration and therefore they have to ferment glucose. And I said, well, if we lower glucose, we take away the fermentable fuels and then we upregulate an alternative fuel called ketone bodies. Um, and the tumor, if the tumor cell uh, doesn't have good respiration, mitochondria can't use the ketone bodies. So that then told us that the ketogenic diet was actually operating through Warburg's central theory. And it was Warburg's theory that brought us to the idea. And then I said, how come I never heard of this? This guy, Otto Warburg, you know, he's a, he, he was a, the 20th century's leading biochemist. And everybody talks about Warburg's uh, findings related to biochemistry. And, but but uh, very little was talked about, uh, discussed about Warburg's cancer. It was, a, it was like kind of um, a, a passe. Oh, it was a kind of an idea back when, and nobody's, cancer is a genetic disease. And, you know, the metabolism was all like effects of genes and all this other stuff. And then I said, well, geez, if, if the cancer cells can't use ketones, that certainly supports Warburg's central theory that the, the, the reason they're using glucose and fermenting is because they can't respire. And then we, we and others started to test the cancer cells to see if they could burn ketones, and they can't, which, which supports the idea there's a mitochondrial problem. So, um, and then it became more and more clear, all these papers showing that the, the number, structure, and function of mitochondria are damaged in cancer cells. Perfect. Makes, locks in, um, it locks in uh, the idea that Warburg was right. Otto Warburg was absolutely correct in his uh, understanding of the, and anyone says that um, uh, Warburg was wrong, uh, hasn't, either is avoiding the subject or hasn't carefully read what Warburg has, has shown like we did. So I was very influenced by this and I had to go back and read all of Warburg's papers and everything that was ever written about Warburg. And I began to realize that he absolutely was right. So, um, uh, but yet people didn't want to believe that it was like, Oh no, Warburg's wrong. Mitochondria are normal. So I began to look at every paper saying mitochondria was normal and looked at the evidence to say that it was normal. And it was mostly done in cell culture using oxygen consumption rather than looking at the structure and function of the mitochondria in many other ways. And when you do that, you find mitochondria abnormal in cancer, supporting Warburg's theory. Now, the problem is, if Warburg is right, then most of what is being done in the cancer field is probably not correct. And I said, what's going on? What's in the cancer field? Well, it's oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes. So they're the drivers of the disease. So how do they? Well, the oncogenes and the tumor suppressor genes, according to the dogmatic view, are causing um, the problems that Warburg saw. I said, oh, really? So I did, what I did was bundled up all of the different uh, observations using nuclear transfer experiments and showed that when scientists move the cancer nucleus into a normal cytoplasm, the cell recovered its normal growth ability. It did not show the neoplastic dysregulated cell growth. So I said, woo. So I started plucking these articles out of the literature one after another and put them all together in one big paper in chapter 13 of my book and then later up another paper showing the nuclear transfer experiments do not support the gene theory of cancer. So if uh, they support Warburg's theory of cancer. So this was the first time we bundled up all these papers together and made a very strong statement that cancer cannot be a nuclear dr driven genetic disease.
period. Okay, now this went over like a lead balloon. You know, the, the, the immediate response was not to attack me or attack this, but to ignore it. People would just simply not want to know about this. And if they, if they knew about it, they would not discuss it. So if you are wrong in the field, they're, gonna, they're going to show you in on no uncertain terms that you are wrong. The idea that there was complete silence over these nuclear transfer experiments, which, which uh, provided massive evidence to sh- support Warburg's theory over the gene theory, just was met with very little discussion, no, no, no major uh, 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 symposium on this, nothing. Yet the field continues to pursue the idea that the cancer is a genetic disease, despite having all of this evidence that's ignored. So then it became, wow, this is like... Um, Something has to be done. So I put all this together in my book because then I, now I had the evidence knowing I'm a geneticist, knowing the biochemistry, knowing what Otto Warburg said, knowing that the mitochondria are in fact damaged in cancer that, that a lot of people say doesn't happen. So I'm seeing a field ignoring all kinds of evidence not consistent with the dogmatic view that cancer is a genetic disease. So now you're touching upon dogma. You're, inter, you're, 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 you're now challenging a dogmatic view of an entire industry and field that, that's not correct. So um, how do you think that's going to go over? Uh, not well, but they don't, they don't attack you. They just ignore you. So, and that's the way it always is. And, and that's the, the whole history of science. When, when, the, when new, something new comes out, most people ignore it. They don't, they don't, because it, it's too disturbing to actually get into it. Because if you really get into it, then you have to be confronted with these facts, and then it becomes very uncomfortable. Your your worldview begins to change, and you're and you now become uncomfortable with this new realization. So the bottom line is just to keep publishing papers saying Warburg was wrong, Warburg was missing, with with references that never really divulge that. And for the majority of scientists, they don't. Many of them don't read, and uh, it's not that they they're, they're, they read intensely in their own field. But if there's something that challenges that worldview, they don't. They wait to see what others say. This is what I always found remarkable. What do you think about the nuclear transfer experiments? Well, I don't think they can be right. Well, why not? Well, I just don't think they can be right. Did you read all the evidence? No, I didn't. But they just can't be right. Well, so, I, 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 but I think that's in any research. If you have grants and you have all your livelihood yeah. based on something, you're yes. you're you're fully vested. Yeah. What about what about looking at it? So, so one of the questions I've had as I've looked at ketogenic diets and calorie restricted diets for probably five seven years now is if if you get a PET scan, mm. right? My understanding, and I, I mean, I'm being a little facetious because it's clear they give you radioactive glucose, yes. right? Because the cancer cells eat them up and it lights them up. Yes. Effectively. I mean, I'm yes. being layman's terms. Yes. Yes. And so if that's what cancer cells feed on and they don't feed on fat and I or on ketones, then it, it, what, what, I, what I'm trying to understand is why don't doctors at least do that? on an adjunctive therapy. You can still get calories from yeah. fat, certain amino acids or proteins less, but still heavily weighted to fat. You can still get calories. Mm. Yeah, and- um, But not feed sugar and glutamine, I guess, right, the right. two yeah. fuel and, sources. And um, well, 
You're absolutely right. The PET scan is a, is a way to uh, detect cells that are uh, taking in much higher levels of, of uh, glucose because the fluorodeoxyglucose, uh, like 2-deoxyglucose, is ma uh, metabolized to uh, a, a non-metabolizable uh, fuel that gets accumulated, and you can then you can see it. And most now. Um, some organs like the brain also take in a lot of a lot of glucose, and it's harder to pet image brain tumors than it is to say um, tumors in the breast or some other other organ. But you can use um, other other forms of, of imaging. But yes, that that was one of the, the 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 key things. And we know that if you're going to have a, if you have damaged or in, insufficient respiration, in order to maintain the same level of energy coming out of the cell or being produced within the cell, you have to use a more primitive, which is fermentation. And therefore, you, the amount of raw material you need has to go up exponentially to make up for the lost efficiency from the organelle that should be making the energy. So then you accumulate this product, and you can see these cancer cells are uh, many of them. So, but some people say, well, that's only because some cancer cells use glucose. There's some tumors that don't light up on PET, and, and that's true, and those are the ones that are using the glutamine. So, so they're not going to, they're going to be more glutamine dependent. They don't show up on pets so well. So they say, well, see, Warburg is wrong because there's a cancer cell. But, but the issue is the fermenting the glutamine. A lot of people don't know that. So, um, the, the, if your mitochondria are damaged, you can still generate energy through mitochondrial fermentation. It's different from oxidative phosphorylation. It's mitochondrial fermentation. You can actually ferment succinic acid in the mitochondria, and you can get tremendous energy from that. They don't need so much glucose. We're seeing that with most of our metastatic cancer cells. Many of the metastatic cancer cells use glutamine more than glucose. Many cancer cells use both. Um, so, so the idea now becomes, okay, Warburg, Otto Warburg's theory of cancer is correct. There's, in my mind, there's no doubt about this. So if that's the case, then cancer is a mitochondrial metabolic disease. So what is driving the tumor? And you say, well, it's using fermentation. Well, there's only a certain number of fuels that can be fermented, and those fuels have to be abundant in the microenvironment to drive the cell if you can't respire effectively. And the tumor cells are growing in a lot of hypoxic areas, so they, they're obviously using ferment, fermentation because normal cells can only ferment for a very short period of time uh, before they die. So tumor cells don't die in, on, in hypoxic environments. They do quite well. They're fermenting. So then you say, well, what, what are the, and cancer cells even ferment in oxygen because they're mitochondria defective and they switched over to an alternative primitive form of energy, which is fermentation. So this is what all cells on the planet had before oxygen came in. Every living organism on the planet was a fermenter. So these cancer cells are simply falling back on an ancient pathway of fermentation. So if that's the case, they're living on the fuel of fermentation. They're living through fermentation metabolism. And there's a very limited number of, of, of fuels that can be fermented. And the predominant ones are glucose and glutamine. Okay, they, they, these are the fuels that are driving the, the, the tumor cell. How do we kill cancer? Take away their fermentable fuels. And then you have a very easy, uh, manageable disease. And it's not 100 diseases. Every cell that's a tumor cell is fermenting either glucose or glutamine or the two of them. Whether it's a brain cancer or lung cancer or bladder cancer, colon cancer, breast cancer, they're all doing the same kind of metabolism. So the question is, doesn't it make more sense to target the common metabolic malady of all the tumor cells rather than focusing on a mutation uh, that's causing a disruption in one pathway? 
And then the other thing that became clear to us is that the mutations are not the cause of the disease. They're the effects of the damage to the respiration. So when you damage the respiration, you form reactive oxygen species, which are carcinogens and mutagens. So the mutations that are, exist in tumors, the many thousands of mutations, the millions of mutations that have been detected in cancer cells, are all a downstream epiphenomena of the damage to the respiration. And we know that when we do the nuclear transfer experiments, we can then eliminate all those. The mutations are not the drivers of the disease. They're an effect of the disease. So this is another another challenge to the concept that cancer is a genetic disease. So most of the therapies that we use to treat patients in the clinic are all based on the view that cancer is a genetic disease. And this, as I said, accounts for why we have uh, 1,600 people a day dying from a disease which is, mis is treated as something other than what it actually is. So, you know, immunotherapies, you know, new drug therapies, most of these therapies are based on the idea that cancer is a genetic disease. Consequently, the tragedy of deaths by the, by the, by the millions throughout the world and the toxicity of trying to stop a disease that doesn't need to be, that where patients don't need to be treated with, all, all you need to do is remove the two fermentable fuels and the tumor cells will die no matter what kind of a tumor it is, you remove glucose and glutamine and you transition over to ketones so the normal cells are protected. The ketone bodies protect normal cells. The removal of the fermentable fuels kills the tumor cells. It's a beautifully elegant, non-toxic system that can lead to the resolution of every kind of a cancer. Well, if, if you break down things into a protocol, which I know you're trying to develop yeah. here, Yes. What are the other, so there's the ketogenic diet. Yes. And what are the other components well, that you add in to help push the system? Yes. So we add, we add um, small amounts of drugs that put additional pressure on glucose and glutamine while under a ketogenic diet. So we can use drugs that, that will push glucose down very low. And, you know, people get all freaked out. Oh, my God, you're going to have an epileptic seizure. You're going to have all kinds of problems. You're going to die if you push your blood sugar. Oh, yeah, you could if you don't raise your ketones. If you elevate ketones, your brain transitions over to an alternative fuel and you don't go unconscious when you push your blood sugars down to 30 milligrams per deciliter. And most physicians say, oh, you, you could kill patients doing that. You could if you don't elevate the ketones. If you elevate the ketones, you don't hurt the patient. The patient, there's no hypoglycemia associated with pushing glucose down as long as the ketones are elevated. So that, that eliminates that concern. So, um, uh, you know, targeting glutamine is a little bit more difficult because glutamine is such an important molecule for the normal health of our immune system and our gut lining and all these other things. So you have to be able to carefully um, uh, tweak the glutamine system so as not to harm uh, the patient. So we put it all together, uh, exercise, uh, stress management. Uh, we use hyperbaric oxygen because hyperbaric oxygen, in our view, can replace radiation therapy. Uh, radiation kills tumor cells by creating reactive oxygen species. Uh, hyperbaric oxygen will kill the tumor cells using the same way without the, the, out the, without the collateral toxicity. But again, you have to lower glucose and elevate ketones, and now the, the cancer cells become extremely vulnerable to hyperbaric oxygen. So we can, um, we can use alternative methods to every kind of a toxic drug therapy that's being used and also radiation therapy by, by, by targeting the, uh, the energy metabolism using, using drugs and procedures like hyperbaric oxygen, hypothermia. Uh, we, we use, um, 
uh, a number of, we're exploring a number of drugs, uh, glutamine targeting drugs, but all of these don't work individually. They need to be worked. They need to work together synergistically with the entire uh, cocktail approach. So this is, it is, it's uh, the, the resolution of cancer will not come in my mind from any singular kind of drug. Uh, used by itself, or even a cocktail of toxic drugs. You, you have to use drugs that are going to target glucose and glutamine and protect the health and vitality of all the normal cells in your body, which is what the ketones do. So a ketogenic diet is basically the platform by which all of these other drugs and procedures will interact synergistically to resolve the, resolve the disease. So this is the what I think will eventually replace at some point in the future, once once the field comes to understand what we're talking about and the and to see the biochemical evidence for what we're talking about, we'll come to realize this is the strategy that will be most effective. What what is the risk of trying hyperbaric oxygen, which I've done stress management, which I've done, although I think my wife would argue I haven't done it well enough, mm. um, exercise. Uh, you know, these are all things and ketogenic diet, which I've done, uh, and I've run multiple half marathons, barely even needing to sip water and mm-hmm. taking in a little bit of, uh, uh, exogenous ketones right before and running half marathons with a f- few sips of water versus previous years when I had to take tons of water. Yeah. Um, but I've tried all these and I've never had any, I've done a five day fast and um, I have another one coming up, uh, and none of them seem to harm me. So, so what, what, um, what, what I'm, what I want to understand from your perspective is what is the harm of any of these? Well, I don't think, I mean, relative, uh, harm relative to, uh, radiation and chemo, <laughs> very little, right? I mean, a ketogenic diet is not going to cause your hair to fall out or, or, uh, you know, all these, all these other kinds of things that, that you would experience if you had toxic radiation, the, the, uh, or, or toxic drug, uh, drugs, uh, even the immunotherapies have a, a whole, uh, a list of, of adverse effects. None, none of the adverse effects, oh, unpalatability, a little digestive, um, uh, issues, maybe a little bit, very minor compared to the foot cramps, foot cramps, which I got. Yeah. Well, that's goes away over time. Yeah. That's from too much exercise or something along <laughs> these lines. You got to, all of these things will work really well. It, as I, as I mentioned to you earlier, it's all dosage, timing, and scheduling because none of these, what I've spoken about, uh, will, will be effective in managing, uh, cancer alone. So, um, and in our new press pulse paper where we put all this together, um, um, the, the strategy, uh, the therapeutic strategy for the resolution of cancer was outlined in the press pulse paper. And, uh, the concept of press pulse is very interesting because it comes from, um, paleobiology and in the history of the earth, uh, we had these catastrophic events that led to the mass extermination of species, uh, at various, um, ancient times from volcanoes, droughts, and, and uh, meteorite impacts. But uh, massive extinction of species uh, never occurred unless two very unlikely events happened simultaneously. There was a chronic stress on the entire population of organisms called the press, and that could have been from, from um, a climate issue or something along these lines. But it, put, uh, it eliminated large number of species that were weak, but, it, but some of the stronger and hardier, hardier species survived. It was only when the pulse, like a, a, a massive volcanic reactions or, or meteoritic uh, uh, striking of the planet, did we 
chronically press and 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 uh, acutely pulse that lead to the mass extinction of all the organisms. So what we did is we took that concept from paleobiology and applied it to oncology. And what we do is the press is the ketogenic diet, stress management, and exercise. And the pulses are hyperbaric oxygen, glutamine targeting, and glucose targeting. So we do that pulsing. We pulse those and we use the press. Uh, so it's a press pulse. And the goal is for the mass extermination and elimination of cancer cells. And it's to be done non-toxically. And I, I believe that we will uh, show that this strategy can be effective. In other, words, in other words, is it possible to resolve cancer without toxicity? Because this is very important. Because most people fear the treatment of cancer as much as they fear the disease itself. They know that they have to suffer from uh, hair loss, vomiting, nausea, all kinds of a, a litany of health issues. Um, and I think we can achieve the same goal of eliminating cancer cells without any of this. But it has to be done strategically, and it has to be done in a very planned way that requires uh, professional phys uh, physicians that know when and how to apply these particular uh, this cocktail approach. And right now, we have no training. There's this, none of this is discussed in medical schools. The physicians, the oncologists are not trained to know how to use food as medicine, to know that cancer is a metabolic disease and not a genetic disease. So the very professionals that would be tasked with the uh, new and novel approach are not, are not trained. So we have this gap of knowledge. So we know how to do this, but we don't have the professionals to do it. And that's where we have to fill in these gaps. But these are, these are protocols that I think you're, sounds like you're most of the way there and it's, it's, it's nuance here. And are, are you, you know, where are you seeing people, and what are you seeing with people that are being effective with these treatments? Well, we're seeing quite, as, as you saw some of the data coming out of uh, Istanbul, uh, when they've applied a cocktail approach with uh, diets, um, uh, procedures, and, and, and drugs, low-dose drugs, we're getting tremendous therapeutic response. Um, and this is just the beginning. Um, I, I think we can streamline, I can think we can refine and, and improve these therapies. I think this is just the beginning, and I think um, cancer is going to be a very manageable disease. And and a lot of a lot of companies and think, well, yeah, we want to make cancer a chronic disease, you know, chronic disease. Um, I, you know, I'm not interested in chronic diseases. Uh, I'm interested in eliminating the disease completely. So um, why do we make a disease chronic when we can resolve it? You know, the bottom line is let's get rid of it. And well, people, you can't do that. You, well, well, you haven't tried. If you do metabolic therapy, you can, you can, uh, you have, uh, and the patient also has to be a participant in the healing process. Can't be, you know, you go to the physician, you have cancer. Okay. You turn your precious soul over to a, a profession with a less than stellar track record in keeping people alive. When you do, when you do a, uh, when you take charge of your own, of your own destiny, you are now participating in your health. So this whole concept of he's battling his cancer, they always use this term. Oh, they're battling cancer. How are they battling? They're sitting down there. They're being infused with a toxic drug, radiated and surgically mutilated, and they're battling. What are they doing? We're not battling. Metabolic therapy, you are actually battling your disease because you are now an active participant in the management of your disease with the assistance and guidance of a knowledgeable physician and nutritionist to do this. Now you become part of the, and you are in fact, when you do metabolic therapy, you are in fact battling your disease. When you sit down and have 
have someone else treat you with these toxins. You're not battling the disease. There, by the grace of God, you survive what they're doing to you. And and I think this metabolic therapy is a completely different strategy, and it will be it will be shown to be the most effective way to manage cancer. It's just a matter of time. Yeah, I, I mean, having had my own my own health issues, and actually, twenty six years ago, seeing my mother go through, she was one of the first recipients of Nupogen, which thank God kept her out of the hospital. Um, and she's totally fine and thriving, and takes care of herself, and can sit on the floor with my kids and pop up without anything. But the the, the havoc it it wreaked on her for the the four months of the chemo and the following several years of of trying to rebalance her system. So. So, but for me, what I'm looking at is, is an industry that will not just make a rapid change. There's no. way too much invested from research dollars to big, massive buildings and teams of people. And so, you know, I, I think the hope in the near term would be to use these as adjunctive therapies and gather data. Um, and in certain parts of the world where they're going to be more open-minded um, and, you know, and, and push those there and build the data. Does yeah. that make? No, that makes sense. But, but, you know, of course um, it, it makes perfect sense. But on the other hand, you know, people want to live. Um, do they want to wait another 10 years uh, while um, they, yeah. they, you know, while we do this, um, uh, well, we're going to give you some chemo. I, I think, I think what we're seeing now is we can give people chemo, uh, but at a very different dosage, which would re massively reduce the toxicity. So I, I think there's a place. Now, radiation will never be completely eliminated. There will always be a tumor that will be better serviced by a radiotherapy than any other kind of therapy. But um, I think the vast majority of metastatic cancers, uh, which are the most deadly and the ones that are most difficult to manage, will be the subject that will be the target of most of the of the metabolic therapy. This is what you want. You want to do you want to kill metastatic cancer cells uh, non-toxically. I mean if you have a benign tumor, a tumor that does not spread, any tumor that doesn't spread should be considered benign. And that can be cured by surgery, radiation. The only problem with radiation is you put yourself at risk for a future cancer. Yeah. So why would you want to be treated by a treatment that's that itself causes cancer and could possibly come back at you in some way in the future? Now, if you're 95 years old and, 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 and you're going to irradiate a, a, some guy's tumor in a small area, a very benign tumor, fine, do it. I'm not saying this is, I mean, there's a, there's a place for everything. It just has to be logically. What's the line? You get a guy that's 20 years old and you don't want to irradiate this, this person because this, this person now could come, uh, this therapy could come back at this person at some point in the future. If you could eliminate that tumor with a non-toxic way, uh, procedure, then you would want to do that. the The problem is there's there's uh, not enough evidence. People say, "Well, I have to have a clinical trial and and all this stuff to prove this." We have enough. We have a lot of well, these are anecdotal. We pile up a bunch of anecdotal reports. There's got to be something to it, you know. I mean, uh, to do a clinical trial. And the other thing about clinical trials and can on metabolic therapy is you got to have a, a knowledgeable staff. You 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 can't take people and run a, uh, in a major medical school and run a clinical trial when they don't have any knowledge base on how to do this, right? So you're taking guys that do clinical trials and various drugs from the pharmaceutical industry, and now you're going to ask them to do a clinical trial and a metabolic therapy about which they know nothing? It, you know, you have to have the right kind of people running the clinical trials for the medical schools, and everybody else stand back. We'll, we'll show you how to do it. And uh, when you do it the right way, you get very good results. You saw some of the results from this. It's unbelievable. Now, the, 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 
the the pictures uh, from this doctor in Turkey who have seen his his podcast, both the video as well as read the transcript several times. The the results are staggering. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing that you, I have seen here. Uh, I mean, no one would ever get there. I've I've had gut issues. And I've had the discussion when you start seeing any kind of dysplasia over someone long-term um, with any form of inflammatory bowel disease, they automatically cut your colon out. Yeah, That's just preventive. Yeah. And so, so I asked, what percentage of people when you cut do you find even dysplasia by the time they do the procedure? Half. Yeah. Right, half. They don't even know. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and, and when this doctor was extremely prominent said to me, she just kind of dropped her head and she couldn't even look up when saying it. Yeah. And um and and so look, I'm 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 here because I'm fascinated uh by by this work and the amount of people that are doing this work seem to all be following a lot of your research. You've been the pioneer of this generation. Yeah, well, I mean, it's because we've developed in our own lab here at Boston College, we've developed the best um, uh, preclinical models for the disease. So it's like a tool. It's a new tool. Okay, so if you have a good tool, you can understand and build things from that tool. Most of the animal models that are used in the big uh, studies of the major hospitals are all genetically engineered mice, all right? So again, if cancer is not a genetic disease, what are you studying these kinds of models for? I mean, every model is valuable in a certain respect, but to put too much emphasis on an artificial model, as, you, as I have a little uh, discussion about that in the beginning of chapter three, the, the concept of using art, artificial information to get real, <laughs> you get from artificial information, you get you, 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 artificial models gives you artificial information. So, um, and then of course, the hot thing now is patient-derived xenographs. So you take a piece of tissue out of a human cancer and you then put it into an immunocompromised mouse. And the biology of the, and the human and the mouse have been separated by 50 million years. The mouse's bi uh, system is, is so much different than the, than the human system. And you select only for those cells that grow in the body of a mouse. And then you treat those cells with a drug and you're expecting to go back to the patient. And in some cases, the patient does well. And in many cases, the patient doesn't do well. So the best thing to do is use mod uh, uh, cancers that develop naturally in the host. We develop those. So these models exactly replicate human glioblastoma and exactly replicate it very close, not exact, but extremely close to what we see in the human disease, systemic metastatic, metastatic cancer and glioblastoma. And we can, we try to manage those and it's very difficult. It's just as difficult for us to, to resolve. In fact, we've never been able to resolve a mouse glioblastoma, uh, but we're coming, we're moving in that direction. So we make discoveries in the preclinical model. And then we tell our physician friends who apply it to their patients and the patients invariably do better than the mouse. So, uh, which is a mystery to us because we always thought we could be better in the mouse, but we, the patients do better. So, and this is, we're seeing it time and time again. Um, so clearly the preclinical system, having the right tools, knowing the right tumors, having the right strategy allows us to explore all this, treat it and test it. And then it goes right to the clinic and the patients do much better. How, over the last bunch of years, how, what, what are the, you know, rough numbers of patients you've seen that have materially benefited? I know they've done their own thing. They're not following your protocol specifically. Yeah. It, nothing is in peak performance, so to speak. 
But what number of people have you seen over the years oh, from different we've seen studies? Dozens and dozens of people. Um, they have, you know, they re they relate this to me in letters, and they're still alive. The problem is we we're having a tough time. Uh, I want we want to publish these patients, and a lot of them are not a part of a of a, of a study. So um, we we I have the data. We piece it together. The interesting thing about um, uh, ketogenic diets, um, if you're doing just ketogenic diet, maybe a few extra uh, um, uh, add-ons, you know, the patients, we're not saying we cure. The, a lot of pe these people die. They're going to die, all right? Not all of them, but many of them die anyway. But, you know, the, it's the process. Quality of life, uh, I've seen GBM patients who re reject um, standard of care, um, uh, chemo and radiation and steroids and all this stuff. They have a very high quality of life, and then they're very good uh, two to three days before they pass. And it's very interesting. A lot of my physician friends have been telling me the same thing. The patient is like, wow, this guy, all of a sudden, he didn't have this long, lingering horrible uh, existence of, of suffering from toxic uh, 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 therapies. They live a very good quality of life and then, and then expire in a, in a couple of days, which is, uh, which is actually surprising uh, to the family because I've gotten letters back from family members and saying, you know, this, my loved one, so-and-so was great up until a past two or three days before he just started going real quick downhill. Now, the problem is that, is, is that, is that it's, it's the tumor starts pressing on. I don't know. We don't know really what's going on. We, yeah. We, it's a very surprising thing because a couple of my physician friends have told me the same thing that these people on these metabolic therapies or at least ketogenic diets, they're, they're very healthy and they look really good up and, and then they, they go downhill very quickly at the end rather than the slow lingering degrading of the but, body. That but, you see. but, but do they live longer? A lot of time. Yes. Because, um, they, uh, I, I, there was a, a French person who, um, who, uh, uh, was 71 years old. He had a glioblastoma. Um, and he, uh, uh, rejected all chemo radiation and they said, well, you're going to be dead in, 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 uh, three to four months. Uh, he lived, um, 17 months, uh, with a very high quality of life and then passed, uh, very shortly, uh, very quickly. And I've had, um, um, um. Uh, Dr. Lavalley told me the same thing about several of his GBM patients. Now, the question, of course, is that we have not yet f uh, applied the full battery and cocktail of approaches that we could we have. We, we're still vetting them in the lab right now because we're not targeting the glutamine in these tumors yet. We're just using the glucose targeting. And we haven't pulled the, put the whole full cocktail on these hyperbaric oxygen, hyperthermia, and all these kinds of things that we can do. So I, I think that it's just a matter of time. Now, when we're doing this in, in some of our GBM patients, treating them before we do standard of care, they do much, much better. So I, I think it's possible that we can, you know, the right now, the average, it depends on your age, but, you know, people say, well, a year or, 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 or 14 months might be the average for death from GBM. But I think we can triple, triple this at least, get a 36, uh, 48 months uh, out, which is far, far greater uh, in, in longevity than we currently have. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm looking at, at strategies that are going to enhance the health and vitality of the normal cells while specifically targeting and knocking out the tumor cells without any toxicity. And this alone will allow patients to live so much longer. And they're on the, we're on the path to resolution. I'm not saying we, when you say we have a, we don't have a cure for cancer. We have a path 
to resolution and long-term management. And I think that's what we have. To say, I, I, I don't care. I'm not going to say anything like that. People, sometimes the media say, well, Seafree says you can cure cancer with a ketogenic diet. I never said that. I said a ketogenic diet is going to be the important platform by which we're going to move toward resolution. But it's not the resolution itself. Well, I think may, maybe another way of saying that, my own interpretation is, if you can go one path where you keep feeding the cancer, yeah, and it's a much tougher battle. I mean, yes. just, just think of yeah, absolutely. Like, I just think of World War II because I was watching another movie recently, and you know, if if you're not, you know, if the if the guys up in the battle that are fighting the war aren't being refueled, rearmed, and you know, yes. and refed, uh, they're they're going to break down. Yeah, right? um, and here you're trying to here. I think the way I see this is that you're trying to starve the cancer of their fuel. Yes. You're trying to support the healthy cells. Yes. And over time, yeah. you, first of all, you're giving the body a fighting chance. Yes. Right? You're and battling your disease. You're <laughs> battling your disease, as you said before, but you're giving the body a fighting yeah. chance. You're using a fuel to, that, that the healthy cells will, will, will immediately uh, use that becomes uh, non-metabolizable to the tumor cell because they have the defective respiration. So it's a marginalization of the tumor cells at the health, uh, at the, uh, 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 to the advantage of the normal cells. Th this is a, a totally different strategy than what we're using today. We're using toxic drugs that go in and kill tumor cells, but also put the normal cells at risk. So, so even the immunotherapies can cause massive problems. Uh, uh, they can attack your immune system. They can kill you. Um, a ketogenic diet is not going to kill you, whereas some of these immunotherapies will actually kill you. So, so you have to be very careful. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's the drug working with the diet in a synergistic way. Now, will an immunotherapy work together with a, a ketogenic diet? As I said, I think the immunotherapies could be very valuable as, as the last stage in the management of the disease, not the first stage. They could, they could uh, clean up any surviving tumor cells because they're all going to have the same epitope that will be targeted by the immunotherapy. Well, so, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go too far off into that, but it's very interesting. The one thing I have seen, because I've looked a lot at the microbiome, is diversity of the microbiome tied to immunotherapy. They give, the higher the diversity, the higher the survival rate. Yeah. But if you go through chemo or you go through antibiotics yes. or you yes. go through other things, yes. you are killing the diversity yes. of your gut. yes. And yes. So you don't want to do that. So you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, right. These are things you don't want to do, right? Yeah, yeah. And you don't want to give patients high dose steroids. This is another thing that's really remarkable. When you have patients that are getting sick from chemo, right? They, 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 oh, we got to build up their appetite and do all this stuff. You give them high dose steroids to make them, make them hungry. Which makes them burn glucose. Which makes them burn glucose, right? Which is fueling the, the, the tough cells. Sends your adrenals yeah, on hyper. It seems you, like. You become hypervigilant and yeah, then you can't calm down. You yeah, breathe less. You yeah, wind up in fight or flight mode yeah, the whole yes. time. Oh, it's terrible. And it drives the tumor. So, so um, you would never, when you understand the biology of cancer, really understand the biology of cancer. The treatments that we're giving to these cancer patients, we did last. You would never want to do that. Those, were the, those are things that you would never want to do. Um, but they do it because they don't understand the biology of the disease. If you understand the biology, then you move into a totally different realm, a totally different uh, uh, approach, a strategy that's very, very different. Do we use drugs? Yes. Do we use procedures? Yes. Uh, do we do, do diets? Yes. We do them all, but it's in a very different context. And I think when you put them into the right context, the results are spectacular. It's still an emerging field that we, that we achieved. No, we're just beginning, but we can see the end. We can see a light. It's a light, a very bright light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, I, I, 
appreciate your time. I would love to uh, do a follow-up uh, interview soon. And I, um, you know, my focus is uh, on cancer and several other diseases that are highly prevalent to find the protocols that will work yeah. and that will um, create uh, the, the environment f for each individual to be healthy going forward. Because it really, I've seen too many people and there's too much cancer affecting too many people I know. And it's highly destructive, and they become shells of who they were. Yes, of and uh, so I'm I'm fascinated. I'm I'm a believer. I I practice a lot of these things preventively. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and and I want to thank you for for all of your contributions. I know it's your life work and your passion. Um, I I I hear you know what 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 drives you, which is to save people to 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 right or wrong so to speak even you know whether wh whether it's right or wrong or not um I, i'm i'm i personally am very much in your camp but i you know i have to say i remain open as i've said to you earlier today um you know it's it's the old quote that is attributed to mark twain which is it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble it's what you know for sure that just ain't so yeah well and and i've i've had this view um that uh you know, just like you see on campus now on, on whether you can have a, a left-wing or right-wing view or anything, it's, it's this fundamental unwillingness to listen to the other side. And, and I think in this case that uh, with the amount of work that, that not just you are doing, but others are doing, and with, the, with simple, the internet and social media, the word is starting to get out. You've said you've, you, get, you have over a thousand people requesting help. Um, you pass them on as you're not a doctor um, and you give them information, but this stuff will come. This stuff yep. will happen. It has to happen if not just because it's supportive and you're starving the cancer and you're giving the body non-toxic methods. It should at the very least be adjunctive therapy and uh, hopefully well, I, adjudicative. Yeah. Oh yeah, I know. I know. I, I, I hear you um, and I'm uh, open to this and I, let's see, let's see the, the results. Uh, like we said, you know, we're getting very, very remarkable, astonishing results on some people, and I think that can be the uh, that could be the um, the trend. You know, this this could be the uh, not the exception but the norm. Yeah, well, I'm I'm thrilled to launch this podcast talking to you, um, thank you. and and uh, I want to thank you for your for your and just time. remember donate money to the single cause single cure foundation. Which I will be doing, you know, uh, because Travis is a is a good person. He's focused on metabolic therapy for cancer. He knows that cancer is a is a mitochondrial metabolic disease, and I think his foundation will be one of the eventually one of the leading foundations in the in the in the quest to manage this disease. Well, I will I will write down the the uh, URL and all the relevant information in the uh, show notes so that that people can uh, easily access that. Good, thank you, and thank you.